and welcome to this bonus episode of Planet B, Everything Must Change. I'm Dahlia Gabriel. This episode features an extended edition of our interview with former Greek finance minister and co-founder of the Democracy in Europe movement, Yanis Varoufakis. You may have heard snippets of this interview in our documentary about infrastructure and climate breakdown. If you haven't, make sure you check that out on the Navarra Media podcast feed. Before we get started, a reminder that you can order a free copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the illustrated book on which this series is based, at www.global-gnd.com. I'm a member of parliament in Greece, leading Meta 25's uh, parliamentary group, also representing DiEM25 at the pan-European level. And I am in Aegina and Athens here in Greece. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute honour to have you. So over recent years, you've been at the forefront of calls for a progressive Green New Deal in Europe. Can you begin by telling us how your work either connects or differs from the Green New Deal framework in the US and also the Green New Deal offered by the European Parliament and what some of the key policy pillars are? Well, let's begin with uh, not so much the European Parliament. The European Parliament is really non-existent. Uh, It's the European Commission. The European Commission has a so-called Green Deal, not a Green New Deal. This uh, omission of the word new is intentional Uh, and and it's very significant because let's um, remind ourselves, cast our minds back to the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Deal. Uh, What made the New Deal a New Deal? It was the notion that in the midst of stagnation, depression, recession, whatever, the Great Depression back then, during capitalism spasms, that produce um, very low levels of investment, low levels of aggregate demand, depression. Uh, What we need is not more taxation. Uh, What we need is to understand that capitalism during those crises produces a great deal of money for the very few. So you have lots of debts, lots of poverty, um, lots of unemployment and all that. But at the same time, at the very same time, you have a mountain of cash that um, the rich have amassed and which they're not investing. Why are they not investing? Because they're too scared that the little people out there will not have the the money to buy the stuff. So this money sits there idly by doing nothing. That was Roosevelt's observation, which led him to the conclusion that uh, this money needs to be energized and it can only be energized by the state that comes in and uh, soaks it up um, not it doesn't confiscate it, it soaks it up, it produces financial instruments like U.S. Treasury bills. Uh, the rich buy those bills because, you know, it gives them a decent um, interest rate in the midst of a depression. And then the state takes this money and creates good stuff with it, things that society needs. That's the New Deal. The European Commission, by dropping new, effectively it signaled that it was not going to do that. You see, this is the essence from where DiEM25, our movement, stands and where I stand personally. Uh, You know, when Sierra Leone or Ghana do not invest much in the green transition, 
Well, you can't really blame them. They don't have much to invest. They're poor countries. The problem with an economic bloc like the European Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States and so on, is that you know, it is completely unconscionable that there is all this money. Never before have we had so much money. Not you and me, personally, right? But, you know, if you look at it at, at an aggregate level, there has never been so much money before in large capitalist developed economies. Never. I mean, they're swimming in cash. You look at the financial markets. Uh, but compared to the amount of money that is there in the European Union, let's say, the amount that is being invested in good quality jobs, in the green transition in particular, is minuscule. It is the lowest level of investment in the history of the world in comparison to the money that is available. And that is a great indictment. And by dropping the new, the European Commission has made it clear they are not going to do anything about it. Because if you look at their great plans for a green transition in Europe, where is the money? You know, von der Leyen and Merkel before that spoke of 1 trillion euros. But I looked at the numbers. 1 trillion euros is a thousand billion, right? Do you know how much money they have set aside for the Green Deal? 29, not a thousand billion, but 29, which is nothing. It's just a drop, in, in, not in the bucket, in the ocean. So the European Commission is fantastic at coming up with uh, greenwashing exercises and, and, and propaganda, but there's not, nothing there. And what I appreciate, however, is that they have signaled this to, to those who want to listen by dropping the word new. And instead of a Green New Deal, it's a Green Deal, right? Now, the United States. Well, there are different kinds of Green New Deal in the United States. This is the problem we progressives have. We are not united. We're not working together. So, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has one. Uh, Naomi Klein, my friend and comrade, has another in Canada and beyond in the Western states of the United States. Um, we need one. <laughs> we need to work towards having a unified Green New Deal. There are many important and good things in uh, the Green New Deal that AOC has presented in in Congress. Uh, where I have a problem is harking back to what I just said before. Um, there's a lot of talk by progressives of the need to tax the rich. And you know that Alexandria is very strong on that, right? Now, I'm all in favor of taxing the rich, you know. Tax the shit out of them. I mean, excuse the French, but this is no time for being polite. But it's not going to work in terms of financing the Green New Deal. The rich must be taxed because it's a question of social justice. But if we expect to fund the green transition by taxing the rich, we'll kill the planet. Uh, let me be abundantly clear on this. Uh, we need $10 trillion a year, as of now, globally, to fund the green transition. You know, $10 trillion a year, you will never get out of taxing. Now, even if you and I get elected tomorrow to lead the United States of America, yeah, I mean, just science fiction, right? Or the United Kingdom or the European Union. Um, how long will it take before we actually increase taxation? It will take years. Uh, it will be very hard to pu push through Congress, through you know the European Parliament, through the national parliaments, through the, you know the House of Commons in Britain. It will take forever, and even then, you know the rich have the power to employ the you know the best accountants in the world and find ways of reporting no profits. And what, what do you what on earth do you or even no wealth? Uh, 
So I'm all in favor of, you know, closing the loopholes and increasing tax rates for the rich and all that. But we just don't have the time to wait to get the money from the rich in that way, through the tax system. Um, this is why I think Roosevelt's idea is so important. We need to use public financial instruments in order to mobilize existing resources, existing liquidity, existing money, immediately to mobilize it. This is why, you know, our movement, we, um, we ran in the 2019 European Parliament election in several countries, seven or eight countries at once with one manifesto. And if, I mean, it was a very comprehensive manifesto. I'm very proud of it. But the, when it comes to funding the green transition, the Green New Deal, we had a very, very simple idea. As you know, the European Central Bank is printing mountain ranges of money, which is all wasted. It's all wasted because it goes to the to the commercial banks, Deutsche Bank, Societe Generale, and so on, and then they lend it to Volkswagen, and Volkswagen goes to the stock exchange and buys stock, you know, stock Volkswagen shares. Share prices go to, through the roof. The directors of Volkswagen get a, a, a huge bonus, but nothing happens. No green transition in investment, right? <laughs> um, so it's wasted um, because the, the ECB pr money printing is diverted to commercial banks. So we had a very simple idea, which is completely illegal and within the treaties of the European Union. We have a public investment bank in the European Union based in Luxembourg. It's called the European, European Investment Bank. Well, let's give it uh, a remit the European Council can do it, um, to issue something like 500 billion, 500, 600 billion euros worth of its own bonds every year. It already issues bonds, but, you know, issue a lot more of them with um, an announcement by the European Central Bank that um, it will buy those bonds if needs be. By if needs be, I mean if their interest rates start rising to keep them down and keep the borrowing costs of the European Investment Bank to zero. That announcement would need that the European Central Bank wouldn't even need to print money to buy it because the rich people would buy those bonds thinking they are safe, correctly. And then we would have 500, 600 billion every year to push into green transition. That's a green new deal for you. So this is a podcast that, and you know, you've addressed this in part about the issue of financing. This is a podcast that looks at sort of infrastructure and a green new deal and a global green new deal to be specific. What role does infrastructure play in your Green New Deal for Europe? It's all infrastructure. Um, we need green energy. We need to shift away from fossil fuels. Well, that's infrastructure. <laughs> and um, uh, it is really, really pathetic that if, even in Europe, forget globally, but even in Europe, you know, Germany has its own energy policy. France has its own. Greece has its own. It is crazy. You know, look look at Europe from, from space. It's just a blob, a little tiny little blob. We should have one policy, one energy policy, one energy union. We should have actually a global union. You know, the parts of the world where there's a lot of wind, there are other parts where there's a lot of sun, there's another part where there's geothermal energy. We should have, as a species, we should combine forces to build an infrastructure that maximizes the extraction of clean energy, renewable energy from from nature, and distributes to, to humanity, electrifies humanity for free and without polluting. Um, that needs a, a global infrastructure. I mean, you know, the bankers have a global infrastructure. You know, they send money from one part of the world to the other by the press of a button. 
And, you know, when they, they fail, uh, they get together and they push the G20 into bailing them out all at once in Japan, in Sweden, in Britain, in Germany, in, Sw- in Switzerland, in America. So we have a global infrastructure when it comes to saving the, the worst examples of the human race, right? The bankers. Uh, but when it comes to having um, a, a clean transition when it comes to energy, everybody is out there for their, on their own doing really stupid things. I mean, you have Germany now building lignite-powered uh, electricity generating stations, which is just absolutely, absolute madness. You know, Merkel is getting out now and everybody's waxing lyrical about the great Angela Merkel. And she's leaving a country behind, which is swimming money in money, Germany has never been richer than it, ha- it is now. And they are still building lignite-powered electricity stations. Now, I mean, you don't need to be left-winger to know that this is madness. In this series, we are imagining what a just and equitable global Green New Deal looks like. And I think, you know, the point that you make about building that global infrastructure is, is so much part of that. And in doing so, we're necessarily looking beyond the possibilities of a green transformation in Europe to scrutinize what impact this could have further down the supply chains in the global south. And so something like the infrastructure revolution in Europe would take vast amounts of resources, which under our current system is being extracted by industries that exploit natural resources and labor in in the south. So how can we ensure that this green revolution Um, does not come at, and particularly a green revolution in Europe, does not come at the expense of workers in these supply chains? Well, look, the reason why we have imperialism (laughs) and Europe and the United States is exploiting systematically the developed world is because there is uh, too little investment in the developed world um, by the people of the developed world for the people of the developed world. It's an imbalance of capital. That's it's really very simple. It's uh, it's not ideological. It's <laughs> a question of uh, the uh, inequality of the distribution of wealth between uh, the global north and the global south. So you need a transfer of wealth from the global north to the global south. It's re- it's it's not rocket science. That's what you need, right? How can you affect it? Well, there are many ways of doing it. One example of something that could work uh, without even a global revolution, I mean, I'm all in favor of a global revolution, but this could work even without a global revolution. Um, Consider this. I don't know whether you heard, but in the last few months, the International Monetary Fund has decided to issue something like $650 billion worth of new SDRs. Right? Now, what are the SDRs? It's the accounting unit of the International Monetary Fund. Uh, it reflects uh, the weighted value of the dollar, of the pound, of uh, the euro, of the yen, of the leading currencies, convertible developed country currencies. So it's, it's not interesting that they could just come up with 650 billion of them. I mean, it's just, you know, the money tree, the money tree that we socialists have been accused of having invented exists. Um, the question is, where is this money going? The IMF decided that it's going to go to countries in accordance, in proportion to their GDP. So the rich countries get, so they have a money tree, they are plucking it, and they're giving it to the rich countries. That's unnecessary, because, you know, if you give to the United States dollars, 
Why does the United States need dollars? They have the Fed. They can print as many as they want. And they're already printing loads. So it is pathetic. But imagine we had the following global Green New Deal, or part of what I'm just going to describe could be um, the, with, you know, embedded in a, in a global new, Green New Deal. Let's say that we had an agreement at the level of the G20, G7, G20, let's begin with the G20, where all trade and all money transfers, capital transfers, um, are denominated in IMF SDRs, Okay, they're denominated. There is an, a ledger, and you say, okay, so a Mercedes-Benz goes from Germany to America. That's you know, 100,000 euros. We convert it to SDRs, and we say, we have a ledger, and we say, this money went there. Or this car went there, and the money came from the United States to Germany. Um, and let's say we also agree, this by, on its own doesn't change anything. It's an accounting exercise. But suppose we all agree that um, at the end of every year, um, a number of SDRs is retained from every nation's account with the IMF in proportion to their surplus, trade surplus, or to their trade deficit. So if, if your trade balances, n n your account is not touched. But if you have a large deficit or a large surplus, symmetrically, you know, 1%, 0.8% of your SDRs are retained, or new ones are created, Okay, um, and that goes into an IMF piggy bank, and those SDRs are then given to developed countries to invest um, in their people, in their human capital, in their schools, their education, their green energy. Now, the beauty of this is that you have a system whereby, firstly, you penalize trade imbalances, which we know are problematic even for the global north, and secondly by, you know, you have a mechanism which, while stabilizing global trade and global capital flows, because you're punishing deficits and surpluses, at the same time you are creating a fund to invest in the global south. So automatically there is a wealth transfer from the global north to the global Look, technically, there are easy ways of doing it. What lacks is the political will, and the political will will continue to lack as long as we progressives allow the bankers and the 0.01% to remain in control of the planet's and the species' interest. Mm. And so I think it, it's very interesting that you talk about the, the sort of technical financing models that we can that can be developed in order to, to build this green revolution globally. To what extent can that happen while institutions like the IMF are, are still intact? and particularly thinking about the history between Global South countries and the IMF when it comes to debt, when it comes to being constantly in debt to this international institution and that preventing you from taking autonomous decisions as a nation. So to what extent do you think it is possible to generate that political will within these, these particular institutions and is there space and time to, to build different ones? Well, I hope there is space and time. I'm not so sure because, you know, we've, we've allowed humanity to continue and probably go beyond the point of no return. But let's not, you know, I mean, I, I don't think we have the right to even think about it. Let's not be pessimistic. We have to act. But you're, look, you're completely right. The possibility, the probability that the IMF will suddenly do things like what I'm advocating is zero. Zero. 
Okay, it's not just hard, it is impossible. Why? Because they are operating, they are functioning like the bailiffs of the bankers, the you know, the creditors, the financial institutions, the financial markets, and the oligarchy. And they will but the reason, however, why I am um coming up with ideas of what the IMF could do, not what it will do, what it could do, is so that people are there, people listening to us, um, are shaken out of the Tina syndrome. The idea that, you know, there's no alternative to what they're doing. You know, what could they have, have that what could they have done differently? No, no. This is what they could have done. They are not doing it, but they're not doing it because they're controlled by the oligarchy. So what is the solution to that? that we take over our governments and replace the functionaries that the IMF. I know this is a big deal, but this is what your generation, because you're much younger than me, uh, has an obligation to do. And we, of you know, the oldies, we have an obligation to help you do. And I guess you have a sort of unique experience of trying to, of, you know, being elected into a national government and trying to affect such change and feeling the brunt of an international institution what lessons do you have for people of my generation when it comes to affecting those kinds of changes at, at these government levels? The problem is never the IMF or the European Central Bank. You know, the enemy will do what the enemy will do. They will operate on behalf by great of the oligarchy of the financial um, and so on. The only thing that can shift things is uh, popular support for what you're doing and a big no backed by a determination of the people out there to support that no and to say no, no deal, you know, um, go to hell. We're not going to do as you're as you're telling us. Uh, so this, you know, what I call the kind of um, constructive disobedience or uh, um, responsible disobedience. We say no to the things that are detrimental to the planet, to the to, to the young generation, and so on. And, you know, go to hell. And if we, if needs be, we're going to create our own currency. We will extract ourselves from the financial system. So the problem is never the enemy. The reason why we were defeated in 2015, and let me be very clear about that, was because within our own ranks, there was disunity, and my prime minister in the end surrendered to them. So the problem, and this, so succinctly, my message to the, to, to the, to the young is make sure that when you take power, you do this in a united fashion and you do not overthrow yourselves. So in your work with DM25, you've, you know, criticized the sort of deeply undemocratic nature of existing institutions um, of the European Union. But obviously your, your policy platform seeks to win power uh, inside of it and, and in turn you know, many of the activists and, and workers and, and union organizers that we've spoken to from the global south are, are deeply suspicious of any policy platform that emerges out of the concept of Europe as a giant financial and trading block. What do you say to those people who have that that suspicion? And, and why do you choose to focus on the EU as a potential vehicle for democratic transformation? You you made you, you you made me think of Ho Chi Minh, uh, the leader of the uh, the North Vietnamese, the Vietnamese resistance to the first the French imperialist occupiers and then the Americans. Uh, there were this there was this group of French progressives visiting him in uh, Hanoi in the mid sixties during the the height of the Vietnam War, and they asked him, "What can we do to help you?" 
And he said, well, have a revolution in France and take over the government there. Um, and I think that that was a brilliant answer because, you know, we Europeans, uh, we cannot help the people of Africa, the people of Asia, the people of the developing world um, through uh, constantly capitulating to the oligarchy ruling the European Union. Uh, we're never going to help India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or the, the majority there who are being oppressed by their own governments and by their own oligarchies if we simply um, you know, try to, 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 to win some influence within the existing system in the European Union. Uh, we need radically to change the European Union so the European Union no longer uh, acts as an imperialist power in the developing world. That's the only thing that can help the developing world, as Ho Chi Minh said. And so in, in a sort of similar vein, can you speak to the responsibility of European nations to, to follow through with a policy of, of reparations and debt repudiation in the context of a global Green New Deal? What are the pathways to achieving that, which is so essential to sort of stopping the European Union from operating as a colonial bloc? You see... The, where I will differ with your phrasing is, in one word, nations. Nations don't exist. It's not the German nation or the British nation or the French nation that is denying uh, the people of Africa or Asia reparations or debt relief, a debt write-off. It's not the nation that is denying them. It is the bankers of Germany, the bankers of France, the bankers of the United Kingdom, the bankers of the United States. It's not the little people in Britain, in Germany, in France, or the United States. The little people, <laughs> the, um, the, the people who work on zero-hour contracts in the United Kingdom, the people who work on mini-jobs in Germany, are also the victims of the oligarchy of Germany, of the oligarchy of the United Kingdom, in the same way that the developing countries' majorities are victims of the oligarchy of Germany, of the United Kingdom, of the United States, and their own oligarchy. Let's not forget that in countries like Nigeria, in India, in other countries, it is the oligarchs of India, of Nigeria, and so on, who in cahoots with the oligarchs of the United Kingdom, of Germany. And so it's not one nation against the other. This is a very wrong perspective I mean, it, it, it's leading us to defeat. We have to understand that the bankers of India and of Bangladesh, uh, when they go to Davos in Switzerland, okay, they are being treated like brothers and sisters, usually brothers, by the Swiss, American, and German bankers. They are as one. They are completely united. So it's not, you know, the, the nations of the north against the nations of the south. It is the oligarchies of the north and the oligarchies of the south Okay, conspiring against the majorities in the north and in the north, in the in the south to preserve their privileges. And so, how how can, given that context and given that power, what are the pathways to getting to those policy platforms of reparations and, and debt relief? Because I think one of the things that has been so effective about this system is the cultural bonding between those the local oligarchs and local masses against one another. So how can, you know, the policy of debt relief is not a popular policy amongst, you know, British people, even though it is would be part of the revolution that would 
in in the end help British working class people? So how to a reparative policy? You're putting your finger on a very old pro problem because recall since the days, the early days of the British Empire, um, the working class in Manchester, in Liverpool, in Glasgow was um, subjected to conditions that um, uh, were even worse than the conditions in Calcutta or Bombay, Mumbai, right? I mean, the working class in Britain lived in hellish conditions, hellish conditions. But they were told that, you know, at least you are on top, you know, you're higher up in the pecking order compared to, you know, to the brown people in India and, and, and the black people in Africa. So the way that they kept the British working class in misery was by giving them this false sense of being superior to the rest of the empire, racism. They used racism as a tool to keep the working class down. But there's nothing different now. When they tell them that, oh, you know, the, you know, the Greeks and the, and, and the Africans are asking for debt relief, for a debt write-down, and you will have to pay for this. This is not true. They will not have to pay. They are already paying for it. Uh, so what the answer to the, to the problem is the same as it has been for centuries. International solidarity between the victims of the oligarchs. This is why, you know, some of us have put together what we call the Progressive International. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders and I inaugurated in 2018, and now we are, you know, organizing. Like last December, for instance, we organized uh, an international strike against Amazon with the hashtag Make Amazon Pay, uh, and we organized a, a strike involving many millions of workers. It started in Bangladesh in one day. It was a rolling strike, Bangladesh, India, Germany. And then from there it leapfrogged to New Jersey and then to Seattle. Um, this is what we need to do. And finally, you know, we are recording this the morning after the German election results. And you wrote a piece yesterday in Jacobin about Angela Merkel, which stated, quote, she skillfully connived to undermine any genuine green transition in Germany or across Europe. Can you outline to us how you believe she did that and what is your reaction to the results of the election so far? Well, what Angela Merkel did, um, and I don't want to person personalize this because you know, personally, I don't think, that, I think she's quite an agreeable person on a personal basis. And um, it's very important not to, you know, I need to be very careful in the, way, in the way I speak about the woman. We have very few women in politics, so it was good that we had somebody like Merkel being a woman, right? But having said that, she was presiding over a regime which in 2009 um, perpetrated the crime against logic and against Europeans. In 2008 uh, and 2009, the German and the French banks went bust following Wall Street. They were criminally insane in the way that they had placed huge bets on American U.S. dollar-denominated um, assets, and they lost everything. Deutsche Bank, you know, all the big German banks were all bankrupt. And what Merkel's government did was to hide this, to conceal that bankruptcy. And they did it by cynically transferring mountain ranges of money uh, lost losses from the books of Deutsche Bank and Finance Bank and Societe Generale and France and so on onto the shoulders of the weakest European taxpayers, Germans, French, Greeks and so on. And, so, and when a year later the Greek government was going bust, 
for the same reasons, the global financial crisis, then, uh, you know, Merkel was responsible for lying to her parliament. She said that, ah, well, we need to save the Greeks. But what she really meant was we need to save Deutsche Bank again. So she had a huge amount of money, the largest loan in human history, being given to the Greek government in 2010, on condition that that money would go back to Deutsche Bank. So see, there's a, and all that was under the cover of European solidarity. So, you know, effectively, she, um, she, she totally distorted the meaning of solidarity. She emptied the, meaning, the, day, the word solidarity of any meaning. Uh, socialism for the bankers became solidarity for the Greeks. <laughs> and, you know, th th thus she turned the Germans against the Greeks, the Greeks against the Germans, the French against the Germans, everybody against the French, you know, uh, and we have a fragmenting European Union. Um, the result of that has been huge transfer of money to, to Germany, you know, because when you, if you're Italian and you have a million euros, uh, you're not going to trust it with an Italian bank that may simply go bust, so you transfer it to Frankfurt. So a huge amount of money going to, to Germany. That strengthened the German elite remarkably, but none of that became investment because it, industrialists, you know, uh, Siemens and so on, looked at the European market and saw the whole thing, you know, going to the dogs and thinking, as if I'm going to invest any money now, who's going to be able to buy my stuff? So they held to that money and they took it to the stock exchange and they bought back their own shares. So the financial markets did magnificently when everybody else suffered. So, you know, right-wing populism, xenophobia and so on, is the result of Merkel's policies, even though she was not xenophobic, she was a very decent person, and she was anti-racist as well. Um, therefore, I call her a paradox, a great paradox. You know, a decent woman, a decent person, who nevertheless made Germany far more powerful while condemning Germany to inequality, to stagnation, to very low levels of investment, and Europe to, to, to fragmentation. And so given this context that we're in where, you know, it's not about the person, it's about the sort of structures in which that person uh, exists, it therefore seems that, you know, no matter who is in charge, uh, European powers are incapable of producing transformative climate action, even in the face of insurmountable scientific evidence. So in that context, and given the timescale that we have, what is the pathway to the scale of wealth transition that you that you have outlined. Well, we have because of of the of the urgency of answering your questions. DM twenty five put two years of very solid work into coming up with our manifesto for the May two thousand and nineteen European Parliament election. And that manifesto was called the Green New Deal for Europe. And in that, we try to answer all these questions. I've already given you examples of, you know, public finance with the European Investment Bank and the European Central Bank. We had um, uh, a very solid and interesting, interesting, I believe, proposal for a universal basic dividend, a variety of the universal basic income proposal. Um, we had um, very clear views on the importance of doing away with um, the quasi-pseudo-markets for emissions um, and the replacement with a very high and rising carbon tax that should go into a kitty and then the proceeds of that carbon tax should be redistributed to the poorest Europeans 
in order to pre- to have you know a just transition. Uh, we you know, I still believe that that Green New Deal for Europe that we ran in 2019 on the basis of or with uh, is still still has all the answers that I would give you to your pertinent questions. Uh, unfortunately, you know what, and this is my great regret. Before May 2019, we took this program and we contacted every progressive organization in Europe. Uh, from my colleagues on the left, in Podemos in Spain, the Link in Germany, um, the Communist Party in France, the Socialist Party, people, whoever was left of that Socialist Party in France, uh, people belong to Mélenchon's party, Green parties in Belgium, in Germany, in Italy, in France. And we said, look, let's sit down. I mean, we don't have a monopoly of uh, wisdom here, but this is our proposal. And it is important to run with one program across Europe because the bankers have one program. The fascists have one program, you know, the xenophobes, get rid of the foreigners or the refugees, whatever. We need to have one program. Let's sit down and have one program. And they didn't want to. Because unfortunately, right, there's no such thing as a European Union. <laughs> we have something called the European Union, but we don't even have pan-European elections. We don't have a European ticket. You cannot, you know, it's in order to run in many different countries in Europe with one program, we had to set up national parties in every country. We couldn't run at a, well, on a pan-European ticket. Um, and it was almost it was it proved impossible to, to 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 get progressives around because each one of them cared about their own nations nation state specific you know calculations political calculations and electoral calculations and the result is that the left and the greens are divided and you can see i mean even in germany now yesterday there was an election the greens got a pathetic 15% they should have gotten 35% for after the the floods that devastated northern Germany, which is c- clear evidence that the Greens were right about climate change. Look at that, 15%. And, you know, the, you have the coal parties and the parties of uh, of the car industry getting 25% each. Why? Because there is no unity. The left was decimated. The Greens are not going anywhere fast. Uh, we progressives are remarkable at not uniting around a common Green New Deal. This is what we need. And I kind of want to actually refer back to some of the things we talked about earlier about sort of financing mechanisms for the infrastructures that are necessary for a green transition. And in order for for that global unity to exist, uh, you've talked about sort of wealth transfers, but obviously the issue isn't that wealth isn't produced in the global south. Obviously, much of the world's workforce that are responsible for generating the wealth that upon which the rest of the world relies is undertaken by paid and unpaid workers in the global south. How can we, rather than create another system in which the global south is relying on transfers of wealth from the north, actually create a system in which workers around the world are actually having that wealth already embedded within their communities that they that they themselves generate? Well, here, for this, you need two things. Firstly, you need to reduce the power of the international, of the multinational monopol- monopolies, that are U.S. and European-centered, because they have the power to to, to simply roll into development countries and take over. Take over governments, take over 
the land, take over the water, take over everything, right? So you need to, re- to, to you need to restrict their power, and that w- we can only do in the European Union and in the United States. Uh, people in the developing world cannot do that. They cannot reduce the power of multinational monopolies. Uh, so that's our work. Uh, and what they need to do is they need to set up um, uh, cooperative structures, local capital, and uh, local alternatives to oligarchic corporations so that they can start growing. Look, this is where China becomes a very interesting case study. Because the only country in the world that has managed to create its own capital and its own financial structures uh, outside the influence and control of the Wests, of the developing worlds, and to do it in a way that lifted people from poverty, is China. You know, uh, I'm saying that as a very serious critic of the Chinese Communist Party, of its uh, policies with the Uyghurs, with uh, Hong Kong, with its anti-democratic and authoritarian practices and so on. But nevertheless, they managed to do that. Uh, what other jurisdiction outside the United States has created an alternative to Amazon, to Google? Yeah, Only the Chinese have done that. So there are lessons to be learned from that. Uh, developing countries must create their own com- you know, um, concentrations of capital, but they better make them, create them in a way that doesn't concentrate power. Uh, amongst the very few, amongst the oligarchy of their countries. Uh, it's what we used to call, um, you know, a socialist transformation of the developing, of the developing world. Um, so we need both. Uh, we need to counter capitalism's uh, tendency to create a new form of feudalism, of techno-feudalism, I call it, you know, digital technology-powered feudal organizations like you know, Facebook and Amazon. It's it's a fiefdom, it's not even capitalism, Amazon. It's just a feudal order, right? A huge uh, parallel economy owned by one man. <laughs> um, so we need to, to counter that in the West and in the developing world. They have to overcome the tendencies of the local bourgeoisie, of the local ruling class, to take over and become the lackeys of the Amazons of the world. It's, it's a huge deal. It's a very large undertaking. There's no technical fix to this. I mean, technical fixes that exist, but they will never be utilized uh, by those who have a, an interest in seeing them unutilized. Finally, um, and you sort of mentioned this in your response to, to the penultimate question, how, in, when it comes to financing infrastructure projects that are necessary both to mitigate against the effects of climate breakdown, but also to replace carbon intensive infrastructures with more sustainable ones? And obviously, you know, southern countries don't have the same investment opportunities as countries of the north because of the power that you've, you've outlined. Could you tell us a bit about your kind of ideas around these financing systems within Europe, like the universal basic dividend, and how would this relate and be contextualized within that global system, within a global, globally just system of financing infrastructure under a green transition? Well, the universal basic dividend is not so much for financing the green transition. It is for um, 
affording Europeans, the weaker of Europeans, the ones who have a greater tendency towards racism anyway, because this is you know, how racism works. Racism and xenophobia and fascism takes hold because of the misery and the poverty and the hopelessness of Europeans. This has always been the case in the 20s and the 30s and today. So the universal basic dividend is to, you know, to give people a break, to give little people, little Europeans, <laughs> weaker Europeans, a break. And also a break that they, they, they have a right to. Because let's face it, we, you know, we all use Google, we all lose, uh, use um, high-tech stuff, um, even the poorest people. And we all, in the process, produce capital for those corporations. So in our proposal, Dean's proposal for UBD, we said anybody who wants to operate in Europe, any large corporation, uh, should hand over 10% of their shares and put them in a social equity fund. And the dividends that accumulate then are divided out to everybody as a universal basic income. Uh, this is something that we should have by right. People should have by rights. And it, it frees them up from two things. Firstly, it frees them up from want. And secondly, it frees them up from superstition. Because, you know, it, 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 having a little, something like a, a trust fund for every, for every baby, a trust fund for every person, is hugely liberating. Um, you know, people, if you're liberated, then you're liberated from superstition as well. Uh, but for the green transition, we, we need big bucks. We need big money to be diverted to ending fossil fuel uh, subsidies uh, and reliance upon them. Uh, so I already outlined what we could do to have 500, 600 billion every year for that through the European Investment Bank. But somebody can then say to me, yeah, well, what about Africa? Well, you know, in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference, uh, the United States and many others agreed to have the International Monetary Fund as something like a central bank for the world, and the World Bank as an investment bank for the world. Now, unfortunately, the World Bank has become an agent of evil um, since 1971 and 1972, right? They've been um, financing the worst of the worst, the, the, the brownest of projects, and they've been operating again as bailiffs on behalf of uh, international bankers. But in principle, the idea of having a World Bank, which... Um, pumps investment funding into the parts of the world that have greatest need for them is a good one. You know, the original 1944 idea was a good one and we need to revive it. We need a new progressive World Bank, which um, can, they can issue bonds and the IMF could support them through new issuance of SDRs. I mentioned the SDRs before. And the money could go into... Uh, projects in the developing world that will allow the, you know, the people of Bangladesh, let's say, to, go, to, 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 to become carbon neutral without starving. You know, to have development, prosperity, that is green and is based on the green transition. That takes money. This is what the World Bank would do. But for that, you know, we need to to make sure that the people who are appointed in the World Bank are not appointed by the Republican or the Democratic Party in the United States. <laughs> That's a big ask. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It's been such a, an honor to chat to you today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Planet B. 
everything must change. This series was produced by Freddie Stewart and made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann and the podcast artwork was designed by Tamika George and Pietro Garone. <laughs>